Hello and welcome back to the Careless Talk Climbing Podcast with Sam Pryor and Aidan Roberts. Uh, we've got something a bit different again this week. Um, I mean, I guess we haven't really settled on a normal format because we're pretty happy to mix it up every week. But this week we've got uh, Tom Herbert on, who is a nutritionist who specializes in rock climbers. Um, and so he really is an incredible font of knowledge uh, when it comes to all things nutrition. Uh, it's different because we focus a lot about sort of the generalities of climbing nutrition. We don't talk about too much about Tom uh, and his personal climbing, although it does come up for those that are interested. I will say it's kind of a heavier episode. Uh, I don't know much. Well, I don't know anything really about nutrition, um, except the few bits and pieces I picked up uh, during these chats. Um, so kind of anything would have seemed technical to me, but um yeah it's kind of a technical chat and so uh I needed to concentrate quite hard to follow it it wasn't really uh one that I could imagine being able to throw on in the background while I was you know doing something else and kind of follow just casually um I reckon you're gonna have to uh pay attention to pick up uh the most uh, you can out of this one Tom also um goes by the name useful coach and he has a website uh, of the same name uh, and on that website, uh, he has some articles which are which require a subscription to to read because um, I think because Tom's had to put a huge amount of work and uh, effort into them, and you know he needs to pay the bills. Um, the, it's not particularly expensive, but uh, he has given uh, listeners to the Careless Talk podcast a small uh, discount if you use the promo code. Uh, careless in capital letters uh, you get five pounds off the year's access uh, i have read some of the articles and we talk about one of them a little bit in the second part of this chat so not this one um and there's some really good stuff in there you know one of the things he's talking about is how you can lose a couple of kilograms in just a couple of days without doing any dieting just by basically changing what you eat um and you can go in there without a calorie deficit or having dehydrated yourself um so you're really good to go but just a little bit lighter for your project so it's, uh, it's really interesting good stuff and i think i'll definitely be trying to use it uh, so i'd highly recommend going on there and taking advantage of that promo code but yeah i hope you enjoy and for once we could consider ourselves an educational podcast so i should add that to the tags all right thanks for listening guys some of the stuff we'll discuss in this podcast we're not going to fit in all of like the content which is in your own podcast which you run with brian is it rigby yes it's yeah him? yeah 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 the podcast climb ski uh climbs it uh, well, climb sci climb sci yeah science yeah yeah <laughs> climb size <laughs> um but uh yeah has uh in-depth podcasts on well it started with macronutrients right uh, that's right so like, yeah uh, fat, fat, protein protein carbs and fat that was t- sort of 2017 2018 yeah so yeah that's how back it goes it's gone um, but yeah those that's six hours i think just yeah, like three yeah. alone is like six hours yeah 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 all of them are like on each subject i think there's a two hour one on keto diet and things like that's it's a right. lot more a lot more in-depth than we'll be covering today so if you want to reference a bit more of the scientific geekery behind all of this go and check that out it's a good listen um thanks man yeah, yeah. and how much do you know about nutrition stuff aiden um well i feel like i've 
I've learned quite a lot, but I've all the stuff I've learned is pretty much from Tom. Right. <laughs> 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 well, so I started. When did I first start working with you? Probably like twenty seventeen. Well, so I, I will. I I will have. To, I'll say this publicly. I I am indebted to Aiden, uh, and I really mean this because when I started in two thousand sixteen, I think when I started to think about doing coaching and nutrition in the kind of in the in in the fullest sense, because I was, I was a personal trainer at the time. I was in IT, but I was doing personal training on the side. I thought, how do I understand about uh, anything about climbing nutrition? Because there was really nothing out there. I mean, there was Neely Quinn's podcast, um, Training Beta. Hmm. Um, I think that was about it, but there wasn't that much talk. There were some books and things, but what I did is I basically contacted who was the, the GB manager then in 2016. It, it wasn't Tom Green or. Uh, I'm just trying to think who would have been. It wasn't Tom Green or uh, Dave Mason might have been. I think it might have been Dave Mason or something. Yeah, yeah. He was actually a podcaster. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) So I contacted or I contacted somebody. I probably checked the emails and I basically asked, would it be possible for me to contact some GB climbers and ask them if they would like to do a food journal for me? Because I was just intrigued about what people were eating. Um, And Aiden was one of the people who said, yeah, I'd be interested in doing that. Um, and you were the only person who stayed doing it. And from there, from, from there, we just, yeah, yeah. From there, we basically just carried on conversation. Uh, and I, you know, with, with all of this sort of, sort of stuff, certainly any coaching circles, you are indebted to people who you're connected to and people see names and they think, well, if Aidan Robert is, is connected to Tom, then, Tom must at least be somebody. Mm. So honestly, Aiden, I really am indebted because if it wasn't for you and your name attached to me, I really don't think anyone would have listened to anything I would have had to say. <laughs> oh, that's, so, that's very nice for you to say. I'm, I'm sure that's not, <laughs> not solely my, uh, <laughs> my influence. But, it, def- uh, no. it definitely helps. It definitely helps because people, people often go like, oh, you work with Aiden Roderick. Oh, I'm like, yes, I do. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's really great. <laughs> yeah no i mean like likewise i've been uh, i've found it incredibly helpful and i was always i think at the time i mean i was doing ucoms at the time so i was quite young um, that's right yeah but uh throughout like all of the different aspects which go into like elite climbing like uh all the training the nutrition like all of that i've always been very interested in the rationale behind everything um and is actually i think quite a helpful uh trait as well in that like there's a lot of uh i mean i'm sure we'll get into this later but like intuition within training or diet is not always helpful um it's all solely reliant upon intuition anyway um so yeah yeah i've always quite enjoyed like kind of understanding why i do the things i do and uh and that was always something i found quite helpful like uh someone to talk to that would like really explain like mm. the in-depth geeky na- rationale behind all of these different things. So uh, yeah, no, thank you as well. well what a wholesome is, start to the podcast. Yeah, this is great because <laughs> we've got, we've got the full uh, spectrum here because we've got the expert and we've got Aiden as a keen student. And then there's me who knows absolutely nothing. Uh, and actually reading this article, you know, when you just need to have like a little bit of knowledge to know how much you don't know well that's basically what this article is giving. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will be asking 
Are we playing a very believable role as the complete layman? Cool. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's awesome. That's fine. So I'll be asking the stupid questions. Um, no, Phil, there's no, there's no stupid questions. This is the thing, you know, I always <laughs> say to, to my clients as well, because when I get clients, I get some people who have like, they spent, you know, they've absorbed huge amounts of podcasts, even my own, they've read books and articles and they come in with a huge amount of knowledge. And I don't assume everybody's like that. I've had people come in and they've asked me questions like, I'm not, I don't quite understand what you mean by carbohydrate. Mm. right um which is obviously the fun of coaching because people come in at different levels so so i always say there's no stupid question because it's really it's it's what what your base of knowledge is i mean if you ask me specific climbing questions like i don't even know half the jargon of climbing so you know um i'm a novice on that side of things well that's actually one of the questions i had for you really it was um like what's your climbing I mean, background how, how this, is, you... this is gonna this is where i lose all respect in the, cl- in the community. no not at all i'm just curious how you've ended up so heavily so, embedded in the climbing community well this is the this is the funny story right so um and it's the I, you know i always say this is the this is the hard hardest bit of imposter syndrome for me right i don't get imposter syndrome about my nutrition knowledge but i get imposter mm. syndrome about even being in the community um so I uh, I was dating someone in would have been 2014 15 maybe um and she basically got me into climbing um and because I like people and chatting to people and I was doing my personal training certification and all that sort of stuff and I'd read a lot of background on nutrition beforehand I ended up having a lot of conversations about nutrition and training and I started to sort of think about different methods and stuff and I wanted to sort of just carry on talking to people about it Anyway, long story short, I uh, I have a uh, a bladder issue, basically with, with a kind of a nervous system bladder issue, which makes me hyper. Um, it's like a hyperactive bladder, and so what that did is it basically put when everyone else was going off to font at the beginning of their you know when you start climbing, everyone starts partnering or partnering up or getting into groups and off going off to Spain and France. I couldn't really do that, so what happened is I ended up just sort of becoming further and further removed from the sort of climbing because I wasn't actually doing the practicality. So I was spending most of my time in sort of indoor gyms. And then I kind of ended up doing three different jobs at the same time. Long story short, my, my climbing kind of ended before it even began in the mm-hmm. kind of what people would classically call climber. So I, I don't even, and people argue against this, but I don't even call myself a climber, right? And I will only call myself a climber when I've actually been outside doing some decent climbing. Now that's very subjective for everybody, but for me, you know, um, basically just from health reasons and being busy, I ended up kind of being in the climbing community and I love climbing. I do climb. Um, but it's just my, my trajectory of life ended up me doing, spending most of my time in books and reading articles and <laughs> talking to people and doing the coaching side of things rather than the practicality, which is very difficult when you, well, not difficult, but it is a tricky thing when I'm trying to help people achieve their best, um, but don't have the direct practical, uh, you know, experience. Um, yeah, no, that's very interesting. Um, I'm just slightly curious, just on a personal point as yeah. to like, what if it what stops you calling yourself a climber is it because you don't you feel like it's not as important to you or because you feel you're talking to these like you know greats like Aiden and you feel like oh god I, I don't even count <laughs> I think it I think it's 
Well, let's say I, I would call, I would say that I practice climbing, but I wouldn't right. say I'm a climber necessarily. Right. It's the same thing as like, I would, I would, I do dance classes. So let's take salsa, for instance, right? So I'm learning mm. salsa. I wouldn't say I'm a salsa dancer. Right. Because I haven't been out in the salsa clubs yet. Right. Okay. Yeah. So once I do, once I, literally one, I do one salsa club, like a random salsa night. And I would say that. So I can, I would call myself a tango dancer because I've done Argentine tango in, in what they call malongas, but I wouldn't call myself. And it's just a weird, it's a thing in my own head. Right. right. And it's not, Fair it doesn't enough. hold me back from anything. Um, no, clearly. But, but it's like that, a, it's like that a hobbyist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, so I don't know. I think it's just, it's, it's, I think it's for me, it's almost like a respect to the sport. Right. You know, I've, I've once people talk about this. This is an interesting topic because people talk about like, you know, everybody is a climber, right? If you just, if you just climb once inside a climbing gym, you're a climber. And that's very true because you're doing the thing. But mm -hmm. in my head, it's like there is a bit of a respect for some reason to the sport where I'm like, once I actually get out climbing, once I'm on a rope somewhere, like for instance, I'm not going to call myself a sport climber if I'm, if I do a couple of routes indoors on a rope right mm. um now if i clocked up a, a bunch of hours maybe i would change my mind about that but i don't know um it doesn't it doesn't bum me out but it's just it's just an interesting thing in my head and maybe it's just like a a stepping stone so it will be a thing like an excitement that once i because I'm, I'm trying to work with this bladder issue it's very you can imagine very annoying but once i get that thing you know, I've got a couple of friends who are like, one day we're going to be somewhere, you know, we'll be in Rocklands together or we'll be mm. something like that. And I know that once that, that will done, it will literally be like, yeah, I'm now, I can get, I'm my, badge. I can get my badge. <laughs> like I'm a real climber now. I'm a real boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like only you can give yourself that badge. Yeah. That, that's what I mean. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. I could be in climbing on plastic for the next you know 10 years and i probably still wouldn't say i'm a climber i'll, I'll tell you part of it happens like this i'll be sitting in a cafe and i just happened the other day and someone says oh because they see me all the time they're like by the way what do you do and i say oh it's very niche and they're like <laughs> and i'm like i'm a i'm a sports nutritionist for rock climbers right and this the next question they always ask is like oh do you climb and i always say yes indoors because Normally they they suddenly imagine me doing something like Alex Honnold free soloing. Like this is how people jump, right? Oh, you're a climber, so you must free solo yeah. El Capitan, right? Um uh so so normally I have to kind of caveat it and just say, Yeah, this is yeah. this is what I do, but I work with people who do some incredible stuff. Um so Yeah, I wonder I guess climbing's uh a strange sport in that it's like I mean, it's very cliche to say it's a lifestyle sport, but like, as in, like, yes, no, but this surfing, is it. Yeah. like surfing and like skateboarding and things like that. It's like the life is very much integrated into the sport, like the social side of things and everything. But uh, I guess even if you don't go on trips, you kind of like, or like feel like you're involved in that level of like going to font or like these regular trips. I guess you, kind of interact with the community in like a, a way in which many other people wouldn't as well like yeah so that's that's that is that is the interesting point and i think that's the disconnect right so for instance i'm, I'm i live in london right like as a climbing nutritionist right mm. <laughs> like 
London is probably the, not the place that you would associate with someone being a climbing nutritionist, right? Or, or at least being well known in the climbing community as someone who's working with climbing athletes, right? Not to say we've got some, we haven't got great climbers in, in London, but you would assume, well, surely you should be in Sheffield or something, right? Um, so, but I think that's exactly it though, Aiden is like my lifestyle doesn't, doesn't fit into the typical climber's lifestyle. Right. I mean, I work with people around the world who have the most sort of enviable lives, you know, just traveling around in vans and living in Boulder, Colorado and Utah and all this sort of stuff. And it feels very strange sometimes when I'm talking to these people because I really feel like I'm in, I'm in a completely different world than theirs. Um, but I do wonder sometimes if that actually is helpful, kind of yeah. out of the outside the box thinking sometimes. Um, which again, like might be why why I can write stuff like that article because I'm, I'm not so embedded in, in growing up in that, in that very sort of tight community way of thinking. I'm sort of looking outside of it coming in. I think there's a psychological advantage as well of being, um, he's sort of a professional looking guy in London rather than being a guy driving up alongside you in a kind of rest stop in bare feet talking to you about nutrition <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> he probably wouldn't listen to it quite as much somehow <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. i don't know if i'd say that... i'm professional though <laughs> you send the barefoot people aren't there giving the impression of professionals <laughs> yeah i definitely didn't have you in mind when i was saying that <laughs> <laughs> oh. good no you did touch on something there which i thought was quite interesting you mentioned about like the outside perspective on uh on like other people's lives and like how to approach nutrition in that way which i definitely like obviously from like a just like a objective science point of view perhaps that's not like as important whether you learn from someone who like you're close to or from a book or like there's like Obviously, it's a very complex system, but like with enough time, if people are intrigued, they can understand the science behind that. I mean, obviously, not everyone's going to put in the time to have the same amount of knowledge, but like you can learn, it's learnable stuff. It's like somewhat, it's like analogous to psychology in that, and there's a lot of psychology in nutrition, which I feel is often where the benefit of a nutritionist is. And I mean, I've obviously known you for a long time, but like, there's like uh, the thing that I feel has been most helpful. And I kind of talk, mentioned it earlier with talking about the role of intuition within nutrition is like having someone to have like an outside perspective on things far more complex and just like the roles of macronutrients when it becomes like psychological and like are, are inspired by people who are inherently light and uh, uh, or like just there's like consistency of like very light people in the sport and maybe you feel like oh that's clearly something that i have to attain and then you introduce your intuition into it like you might be like oh well i need to be lighter and i'm training a lot today but i want to be lighter so i'm not going to eat that much and like i don't know if you sometimes it's not even active decision I've, I've definitely experienced it in the past where like i'll just i'll go through that mind process and gradually I mean, it's not very helpful. Uh, you have a very unstructured method to try and lose weight and then under fuel, you can't adapt as well. Um, I did, I was kind of like, we, I think Sam, you wanted to ask something about this as well, about like 
the role of weight loss. And I kind of think it could be quite good to talk about like the role which that can play in someone's climbing, as in it is a very useful tool, but how to almost manage that in a healthy manner. Perhaps the issue isn't just that people are light, but more the stigma and like uh, feel of judgment. So like someone within climbing might look at people who are light and be like, well, obviously that's helpful for performance. It's a bodyweight sport. Inevitably, people are going to be light in that sport. But it's almost like there's nowadays a lot of judgment about that. Uh, like people are almost criticized or like maybe it's, it's very like a taboo subject, but like whereas it's always going to happen, people are going to be light because it's a bodyweight sport. People don't feel like they can come forward and be like, right, well, I feel heavy and I want to be light to perform. They feel like they can't actually speak to people about it. Well, I'm doing this thing, which is being judged by the climate community. Therefore, I'm going to be quiet about it and not approach people about it and then take matters into their own hand. And it can be incredibly damaging. But whether there's a way we can like tackle that through like less judgment or like how we can manage that in the climbing community. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a lot there. Absolutely. And this is something that I'm kind of more, more and more passionate about. Um, but to go right to the beginning bit that you said, uh, I think, um, so we all, we all have biases. Uh, if we're talking about just nutrition, right? We all have biases coming in and those biases normally come from just what you've read before, right? Or even your upbringing, right? In terms of what foods, what foods are good, what foods are bad, even using the terms good and bad, right? That's a societal kind of construct, right? Um, uh, I've worked with many, many clients who have told me they have had parents or siblings who have had a disordered relationship with food in their body. And that has influenced the way that they see themselves and the, how they eat and things like that. So there's that coming in. So if we talk about intuition, that's the, that's why I have a little bit of a problem when people talk about in, using your intuition to make decisions, right? With food and, and things, because often, often it's, you know, if I make an intuition about something related to sports nutrition it's let's quote unquote say it's well informed right because i have direct education and experience working within that so that intuition is let's say slightly better right but other people making intuition about different things with food and, and stuff like that is it's going to be informed by what they already know and like i said the biases that's why we you know there's still a lot of bias against eating carbohydrates right or there is a bias that a certain diet is better because a certain sports person has adopted it and has done very well, right? Or there's a bias for or against different supplements, or there's a bias against all these sort of things, right? Um, so that's why it is always interesting, I think, to think about whenever you're making decisions to try and understand what is the world that you're coming from, what is the big worldview that you have, and what is your education level, not formal, but just in a general sense, that is informing that decision because it, because we see in nutrition all the time, there's these trends that happen, right? So, you know, I've been around in nutrition now or reading about nutrition for cheapest like 10 years or so, you know, it's very, very cool because I was in sort of chat rooms with the people who, who are now these sort of big names in various areas. Some of them ended up being kind of weird gurus right? Some of them made really big websites like examine.com and all these sort of things. These are authors and 
So, but what's weird is that you see this sort of flow of different information. Suddenly it's like sugar is the evil and the answer about everything. And this is the thing with nutrition is that what, what happens is that suddenly become the reason for everything else going wrong or every, or is the answer for everything. It's that sort of, you know, everything looks like a nail if you have a hammer. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's very common in nutrition. And that's why you see there's just so many books that are like the, the keto cure or the sugar problem or the, you know, I saw one the other day. It's like the magnesium. It's like magnesium is now the answer to like all the woes. Right. And what you'll find is that people, people who really read very wide in nutrition, you actually understand that it's almost like the, in the most sense, in the most applicable sense, nutrition nutrition practice in a broad sense of just eating food is really the answer versus something very minute, like it is a, a single vitamin that you're missing or you're having too much of something. It really doesn't work like that. It's very nutrition is a kind of really poor poor science in that sense. You know, we spoke about this, Aiden, uh, about like with training you can be very specific you can load at this amount on this edge whatever whatever right very measurable yeah. um, very measurable um and then but with uh with nutrition it doesn't work like that you can't do it your body is a very complex um a complex thing what you got to understand is that it, there isn't these sort of small small things that can make a change so yeah almost like people get caught up on like the very marginal changes when there's like that's right that's right at the, at the cost of something a lot more yeah whereas whereas when the application is actually very much broader right and that's where like that's where you can push against the biases and push against the intuition and things like that um in terms of the in terms of the 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 weight the the issue and the bigger broader issue of, of weight and things like that i think the i think we are in a in an interesting point at the moment um and again, I'm talking of, I'm talking from the position of not being within the climbing community directly, right? I haven't been out at the crag listening to conversations with people, but I have had clients who tell me the sort of conversations people had. And I've had older sort of veteran climbers tell me conversations and practices that people were doing or have been doing and massive focuses on really manipulating the body to try and squeeze the most performance out. And obviously in the, in the last sort of five years, or yeah, probably five years, there's this been bubbling up of the stories of people who have really come into disordered eating or who've been very open about coming from disordered eating backgrounds, or it has led to even more serious things, such as eating disorders, right? Um, bulimia and things like that. Um, a big surge of, of, of an understanding. And I've been one of the people who've been sort of key to to talking about it is, is this concept of REDS or, or relative energy deficiency in sport, which is a sort of big umbrella term for all of these sort of metabolic and psychological issues that come, come from chronic under eating. Um, and so, and so this has been an important thing on the, on the other side of it, or not the other side, but alongside it, as we've seen in, in, in wider society, there has been, and very rightly, rightly in the most part a kind of a, a new understanding of who we are as people 
the whole sort of the the gender discussion, the body positivity movement, the push back against this sort of classic uh, what they quite unquote called diet culture. And all of these things are coming into the sort of melting pot, right, of sort of understanding around what bodies are. I mean, I, for instance, I had, was totally unaware that there was, for instance, a, th- there was lack of representation of different people in climbing, right? You know, I really didn't realize it was a very sort of white sport, right? Um, you know, if you told me about if it was like yachting or something like that, <laughs> then I'd be like, of course. Right. This seems to be quite clearly, but I had no idea that it really was such an actual issue in in climbing. Um, uh, And so there's obviously been that coming in. And so I think what's happened is that there's this massive bubble up of really important, really good changes that are happening in climbing. And I think with the body side of things and with weight, what's happened now is that it's gone a little too, like you say, I think people are, maybe a little bit worried that they're like, well, it's now quote unquote dysfunctional if I want to change my body to improve. Or I I I would assume that my body is quote unquote heavy to do the best climbing I could ever do. And now I'm uncomfortable talking about wanting to change it because this is this now being part of quote unquote the diet culture narrative? Am I part of the problem in quotes? Right. And I think that's actually, it's true in terms of not true in terms of being part of the problem. It's true in terms of people are, are, are maybe scared of talking about it um, because, well, this goes back to the nutrition side of things. It's really not, a one thing. It's not a this like you know. The, it's not binary in sense. This and this. There is this massive nuance of everything, and this is the thing that I'm trying to 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 have more open conversation about. Climbing is a weight based sport, right? It's a body weight influenced sport. Now, that means that within a boundary of of um, your genetics, you can have some influence over your performance by reducing your body weight, right? And when we talk about reducing body weight, we're mainly talking about reducing body fat because, you know, I've had some people ask me about trying to reduce um, uh, muscle mass, but that's a very different thing altogether. Really what I'm wanting, wanting to try and open up more in the, in the conversation is that we can have both. We can have an understanding that everybody can climb that you don't have to come into climbing in a certain shape. You don't have to have a certain body type to be a climber or to climb, to enjoy the sport. And you don't even have to have a certain body type to do incredibly well in sport, right? We can see that more and more now as more and more athletes are coming through that we're like, holy crap, it's a bit like sprinting, right? Like you get your same bolt who just comes out of nowhere and is this tall guy who doesn't fit the sort of typical sprinter and then just blows everybody away. So we may have that in climbing, right? We might start having people who are sort of outliers who are doing incredible in their sport. Um, so what I'm trying to trying to open up now and more in the conversation is to say, okay, so how, how, how do we navigate this? We need to be able to talk about using uh, calorie restriction to lower body fat but at the same time, 
not say, well, you have to be this sort of body fat percentage to be a great climber, right? Um, and I think this is an important conversation to have. And, and certainly because I think the more we talk about it and we, the more we get rid of any taboo and it becomes just a sort of, you know, a very beige normal thing, people will be able to talk to their coaches and be able to talk about it with friends and things like that and say, and have a, an actual conversation about it without constantly worrying that they're going to be judged. Um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's tricky, but it's, it is important. We need to do it. Uh, yeah. I do think right now, if I was, uh, I can totally understand and relate why people wouldn't want to talk about uh, doing anything to lose body fat because climbing has woken up to the problem that it has in that climbing as a culture has a huge problem disordered problem with food and we're aware we're aware of that now but now we're so aware of that that if anyone wants to lose a bit of body fat for performance there is a lot of taboo on talking about it because you know oh you know you're going too far this is classic climber you know bordering on you know disordered eating again and so how do we kind of open up that narrative so it's kind of safe to talk about it? Because it feels like it'd be so much less dangerous if you're allowed to talk about it. Absolutely. And I think the reason, the way that it is that you should do it is that we need to talk about the actual reality and the objective quote unquote science of what it is. Right. So the, 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 so for instance, what we, what we do know is that in a, in a sort of general sense is that just because you're lighter doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be a better climber, right? Like there isn't a specific body type, right? There's, there doesn't seem to be a, a model that everyone should move towards to get the best out of their performance, right? Here's an interesting thing. We kind of know this with body fat and athleticism and more subtly, I think, with uh, with women or female athletes, rather, is that there's kind of an assumption that the lower your body fat, the better you're going to be because you are leaner, right? You have better better you know ratio of of muscle mass to fat. But what we're seeing more and more, and particularly with female athletes, is that there there is a point, and there's no We've got some guidelines on this, but the, it seems to be very, un, very unique to each person. But there seems to be a point that, that at a certain percentage of body fat, you perform worse. And it's not entirely sure why, because it's not clear if it is a ratio of fat to muscle mass or the way that someone has to maintain that, say, low body fat requires them to be under eating for longer periods of time. And so you, it's quite difficult to tease out what is the mechanism by which people are actually performing worse when they're lower body fat? Is it the fact that they're constantly dieting to maintain that low body fat? Or is it the low body fat itself sending a feedback signal, a signal to the, to the body as a whole that you know, and that this is some, there is a deficit of body fat here that needs, that is missing, that that is what is required for good health in terms of this person uniquely, right? And this is a very interesting thing is that I've seen this with clients as well, is that uh, 
you can you can get to a point where you're low body fat and you look quote unquote ripped. If you're talking about a male athlete here, you're looking ripped, right? But what they find is that they just seem to have a lot more fatigue or they don't seem to be able to sustain the same workload that they, that they were before. And this is outside of eating enough, right? So it's almost like you get, you get very lean. You then put in all the food again. So you're now eating at energy balance, right? And you're doing everything you can. But for some reason, you just, they just don't seem to have all their gears. And what happens is that they then, they then basically move up about 2% body fat. And so they're a little bit softer, right? And for some, for some reason, now they just feel like they've got a lot more quote unquote energy, right? So there must be at some level. I, I, the point being is that I think, I think most people kind of assume that, that body fat itself is a sort of just useless tissue, right? That it's kind of like, it's the dumb tissue that, that we just gain. And we should just get rid of all of it, right? Um, and we understand, yeah, we need some essential fat, right? Just to keep us alive. But in general, we should just strip it all off because, you know, it's basically just wasting our time. But, but it appears that for each person, there may be a body fat set point that once you start moving below that, the body kind of senses that there is some homeostatic, like a thermometer, it's too low. And so what it starts to do is it starts to turn down other dials. It, it makes a lot of sense. Like if we're going to go back, like evolutionarily, like if we're dancing close to the line of starvation, that the body is going to like impede like excess, like energy expenditure, because you're like at more risk of that. Like mm. obviously there's always that uncertainty. I mean, you can never entirely rely on evolution at this point we're a long way from yeah, 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 evolutionary yeah. advantage but yeah. it does make sense <laughs> yeah I, I mean they've, they've, they're trying to find this they're trying to find this what they call um for instance we we're knowing understanding more and more now that it's just it's not a it's not a holy lifestyle related thing as well right so different people and different people groups are going to have higher body fat quote-unquote set points and and even this set point theory is argued against because we can't we're not really sure where that is but the key thing is is that there's a, a main part of the brain called the hypothalamus which is like the thermometer for the body and that handles it handles sort of the dialing up and down of energy expenditure and your nervous system output and for some people who who are who have sort of metabolic issues that thermostat is 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 not working the way it should be, or it's not getting the signaling the way it has, which is why you'll find people who can be obese, but are really hungry all the time, right? Or they're lacking a lot of energy. And so from the energy point of view, it's like this is the, classically the body has ample amounts of energy available to it. But why are these people feeling so hungry or why are they feeling like they have very low energy, right? Um, and there's so many, and this is the thing with nutrition and physiology. It's such a complicated system. And the way that you can think about it is basically it's like what I call smart soup. So everything in our body is basically molecules that are interacting with other molecules. You know, it's chemicals interacting with chemicals and causing different gradient changes. This is when you exercise, you're causing a, a change in the gradient of one molecule to another and because of that gradient of molecule change 
something gets upregulated, transporters get changed, things get phosphorylated, things. And there's this massive complex interplay. And that's why it's this constant, what I call with clients, a weather pattern. So something you do on Tuesday might impact you on Thursday because you're changing the entire wave of the body here and changing different inputs and outputs and da 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 and then it all flows into something else. But then we have the smart part of it, which is basically the, you know, the majesty of the brain and the nervous system, which is listening to all of these inputs and outputs and changing the direction of everything else and influencing this weather pattern at some level. But then this weather pattern goes back and influences the, I mean, it's the most bonkers thing. I mean, this is the most, we are the most incredible creatures. You know, um, and the more you spend, you know, trying to understand it, it's phenomenal. And the great thing about nutrition and physiology is that, you know, every year we just discover like stuff that basically informs stuff and changes the way that we understand it. I mean, we're seeing this with energy system stuff. Like I think a lot of the energy system, the way that we think about it now in terms of we should be training anaerobic or we should do this is actually going to be superseded in the next three or four years. Like not in the whole sense, but it, but you'll see the language will change. A bit like we used to talk about having lactic acid in the muscles, right? No one talks about that because that's just not true, right? It's called lactate and lactate is actually an energy substrate. And lactate itself is like one of the primary energy substrates for the body. And it's the preferred energy substrate for almost all tissues. So what we thought was a problem, this buildup of acid, which we called lactic acid, ends up actually being fundamentally the primary fuel source, <laughs> right? So what we're going to see now with energy system stuff is we'll start to, to hear people saying, well, you do realize that we're never anaerobic. We're always aerobic. And so like, what are we talking about when we're doing anaerobic-based training or when we're doing this? Because it's always aerobic right? It's just different shifting. And so you're seeing, and I've got some article stuff that I'm putting together to show this. And there's some very good other people uh, on, on the edges of this who are really smart and are looking and questioning things like there is no such thing as anaerobic threshold, like pushing back against that and stuff like that. So um, a little, yeah, it's like a little testament to how little we actually understand. <laughs> <laughs> there are some, I mean, there's some things that we have like a, a solid, a, a really solid understanding. And it's so complex, like something called like the TCA cycle or the Krebs cycle. Like that's pretty much like we've, we've got all the molecule pathways as, and things coming in. I don't know how they actually study this stuff. It's incredible. But then from that, we're like now understanding that this scope of everything is just, is just huge. So, so the point being is, is what I try and encourage people if we're zooming now back out or zooming in or zooming, I don't know which way we're going, but to, to the actual real world application, because that's really what I, what I work with, right. Is that we can get, and you get this all the time. You get people who get really fascinated about molecular stuff happening and they want to fiddle with this on the outskirts. Then you're like, and I chuckle because I'm like, okay, just work with real people because it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. You know, um, I can talk about glute, for transporters on the cell, you know, and insulin mediated or unmediated transport, but the application is eat a banana. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people would want you to understand it, but then yes. just tell them what to do. Yeah, exactly. Um, so go, going back a little way, um, 
Is there any way that someone could know besides trial and error if they are above or below their kind of ideal body fat set point? Yes. Yeah, so this is so this is the way that I do it, right? Because we can't, we don't have some, we have some numbers, right? Like if someone, if, if a female athlete comes to me and she's sort of sitting around the sort of, let's say 13, 14% body fat, right? Most people would look at that athlete and know already that she's an outlier. And I use female athletes because it's just easier um, to, to use an example, but they would look at that person and, and almost everybody would be commenting that that person looks lean, right? Mm. Um, uh, when somebody like that comes to me, you know, they would normally be coming to me anyway, because they're trying to make themselves healthier. Let's call it that. Um, but, uh, in a general sense, that is too low for a female, for the majority of female athletes, that is too low. Again, there's going to be always outliers, right? Uh, And this is the thing is you can't just say, well, all all female athletes should be 20% body fat right? Like it doesn't work like that. Or all male athletes should be, you know, within, let's say high-end performers, like between 12 and 15%. Like it doesn't work like that. It really doesn't work like that. So what I normally say to people is actually to, 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 I'm going to say zoom out again, but rather actually look at what's happening in your life and the way that you're responding. Because again, it whether or not it's a set point or whether or not it's actually a lifestyle and practice issue. And that quote unquote set point could actually be moved down it whilst improving the, the practice. So if someone comes to me and they're like, they're, they're, they're constantly fatigued, they have muscle soreness, they're under recovery, they keep getting tweaky injuries, you know, uh, then their, their stress levels are very high, they're not sleeping very well, all this sort of stuff. These lifestyle things all muddled together and are causing this sort of this stew of of just underperformance. And so, yes, maybe their body fat's too low, but 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 whether or not their body fat is too low or not, the uh, the application or the answer to that problem is exactly the same. What I do is I look at them in, in terms of their their um, uh, their body composition as much as I can. Either they they go to the sort of DEXA scan level, which is a an X-ray that Aiden had it done, where basically you can see your bone mineral density, your muscle mass, your fat mass, and that gives me a more accurate understanding of your body composition. And so I can create some calculations of recommended intake, right, of calories and things. Or in the most sense, it's really quite simple, is that I just look at it and say, okay, we should be in this sort of range of eating. Right. And again, what's so interesting about the difference between the textbook versus the actual working with real people is that almost all my clients eat relatively the same in terms of numbers. And maybe let's say three out of 10 are on the high end of different things. So I have some climbers who are sort of their maintenance calories are like 3,500. These are big climbers. These are like 90. I've got one guy who's like 95 kilos, right? Um, but most everybody else kind of sits in this sort of very middle road of calorie intake and food. But what I want, 
people to understand is that you don't need to know your calorie count to eat well. What, what you just need to understand is that if you put in the practice of just strategies, i.e. the banana, quote example, you'll understand that you end up eating enough. And what's interesting is that it's not necessarily intuition, but your body's smart enough to, to, to feed back to you to uh, change your behavior when it has had, quote unquote, enough food right and what i try and teach people is this is to widen the amount of food they eat so what we do is we basically say we put some practices in so okay so we're going to have most people have three normal size meals right and so we look that's why i look at a, a food journal with people what are you kind of typically eating right if you're just having a coffee for breakfast and you're trying to perform your best this is probably going to be suboptimal unless you can move a lot of food into the rest of the day right but what we look at is in a general sense it's like are you having three meals that are just generally quote-unquote balanced meaning they have some carbs and they have some protein and the fat gets bundled along with it right and then my main focus is actually doing the extra which a lot of climbers are not doing and the biggest thing i see is really this window of time when they're training or when they're having their output so most people are having like a normal size breakfast. For climbers, it's like nine out of 10 people are having oatmeal for some reason. Right? <laughs> oatmeal is the climber's like fuel. Uh, oatmeal for breakfast, they have a typical lunch, right? Depending on what their work situation is. They do their training, which normally involves maybe like a coffee and a cliff bar, maybe a banana, and then they have their dinner and dinner almost for almost every single person ends up being the biggest meal of the day. It's very sort of complex. It's a big meal of protein and fats and carbs, right? My focus is this, is with almost everybody is I say, that's not enough food because what it is, is that it's like a bowl of oatmeal. Like it could be a sandwich at lunch or some sort of, you know, subway or something or just something small. And then they have this really big dinner and the dinner's fine. The problem is, is it's like you can't just do two or three hours of training on a cliff bar and a cup of coffee, right? And so where I come in is I say, without even understanding the calories, what I want you to do is I want you to start to put in a hell of a lot more food into the training window. And what I mean by a hell of a lot more food, it's almost like an entire meal. So what it looks like is it could be something like if I was to say the what I do myself and what I would recommend, like if you want to cross the T's and dot the I's, you have some sort of protein, which is best as like a protein supplement before the training, a protein supplement at the end of the training. Even if you're going to have dinner like two hours later, you sandwich your training window with two protein shakes, right? And I'll explain why I do this. And then right before training, you try and double up some sort of carbs. So you don't just have a cliff bar, you have a cliff bar and a banana right? Or you have a banana and a packet of rice, or you have a chocolate chip cookie and a packet of rice, you know, and I'm going to mean by packet of rice, it could be like, you know, one of those microwave 250 gram packets of rice. And what I'm doing is I'm taking people from who are eating, let's say 25 to 30 grams of carbohydrate, which is what a cliff bar would be or something to having something like a hundred to uh, 80 to a hundred grams of carbohydrate, right? So a banana is like 25 grams of carbohydrate, a typical chocolate bar or cliff bar is like 30 grams of carbohydrate. 
a 250 gram packet of like microwave rice, that's about 80 grams of carbohydrate, right? So what I'm trying to do is put in a lot more carbohydrates into the front of the session. And then if the session is like two hours long or longer, we then put in something else in the middle again, which could be something snacky, like another banana or, or something sweet, like it could be some, like a nature's valley bar or something like that. Um, and, and what we're trying to do is basically the reason for this is that if the whole day, let's just make it easy. Someone requires quote unquote 2,500 calories to maintain their, their body. Their training session, I try and buffer the entire training session stress by lifting energy availability and carbohydrate availability. So that ends up being anything from like 400 to a thousand calories. And this is the interesting bit. And I know I'm talking kind of very round and round, but this is the interesting bit that goes back to that quote unquote body fat set point is that I think a lot of a lot of the issues that we're seeing with um, energy de deficiency or um, under eating and all of this is not that people, it, it is, but th it's more to it, is, is that it's not the total calories at the end of the day that matter, right? They do, but it's rather the energy availability and also the carbohydrate availability, because this is another interesting thing is that it, and I'm, I'm, I, don't, I could keep going on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll come back and, and explain that as well. But it's rather about windows of time of stress in the body. If you remember, I talked about the, the body is like a weather pattern, right? If it's like a weather pattern at different points in time, we are, we are driving a change by physically doing stuff that is affecting the weather that's then going to flow into the rest of the week. I.e., if you train really hard on a Monday, guess what? It's normally Wednesday that you start to feel really sore, right? That's that sort of delayed onset muscle soreness, right? right. If you do a novel training thing, a novel training stimulus, like you suddenly do, I don't know, split squats. You've never done split squats before you do split squats. Guess what? Like you get really sore, right? So. The point being is that why, what are we doing over here that's then changing something later on, right? And so if you understand that your nutrition and your physiology is this waving weather system, then you can't just eat the same way and the same amount of food in the same timing all the time. Why would you assume that that would work, right? It's the same thing as I say to people, for some reason, we kind of assume because of the language that we use that at midnight, all of our things get reset. So if I'm supposed to have 130 grams of protein per day and 250 grams of carbs per day and 2,500 calories, apparently at midnight, suddenly goes back to zero. And now it's a new day. So I need 250 grams of carbohydrate. I mean, this, like, this is obviously not true, right? We're just measuring this in, in 24 hours because we do that with everything else. Right. Oh, so you're telling me if it gets to midnight, I don't get quoted. You just start snacking again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. So, so this is the point is like, is that what we got to understand is that you should be looking at nutrition within the windows of time of need. And, and I'm bringing this right round again to this energy deficiency and sport and things like that. It makes obvious sense that if someone is, is, it, 
in a problem with food, total intake, that they can't suddenly eat, let's say, 2,500 calories in the, in the last four hours of the day and assume that that's going to fix it because that's the amount of calories that they need, right? It's obviously not like that. The body doesn't work like that. And so what, what I want to try and stress with people is that you should look at the, not the energy necessarily needs of the, of the body in windows of time, but the, what I call substrates and signaling, right? So if, if you only train, let's say in the evening, your demand and your need for, for something like carbohydrate is probably much lower in the morning, right? Because carbohydrate is a very, you know, it's what I call rocket fuel, right? So the, 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 the application of glucose in the body in the morning, if you're an office worker, is going to be different than if you are doing sport later in the, in the day, right? So what I do is I use that carbohydrate or glucose lever within the time that matters, i.e., which is in, within the window of, of uh, the activity and the training, right? Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to support everything that the body's doing in that time and buffer the stress and allow the body to respond. It's the same way, like within the hours uh, after your training load, you need to be eating slightly differently and be putting in more things like protein and things like that. So to kind of come around in a big circle, it's it, what I'm trying to say is that the, the interesting thing about nutrition is that we've got to get away from thinking about this sort of rigid pattern of we need to eat like this many this and this at this and we should have this many calories and this is how much you need at different point because everybody knows that the, and i always think about it like training you know full well no matter how good your training plan is there are days or weeks when you just feel magnificent and other weeks that you just feel like Bleh. and why is that right and it's like that because we don't we are a complex system that does not fit into a spreadsheet right we can try and put things in spreadsheets i mean i see a lot of lattice spreadsheets for instance which are very complicated and it makes sense that we're going to go up and taper down and do all this sort of stuff but the question is is why aren't people doing that with their food for instance why are you not eating more at this sort of period of time right what people do often is they eat less they're like oh i'm going to deload bit so i'm going to just eat less Right. Or I'm trying to improve my performance in this performance block. So I'm going to concurrently eat less to lower my body fat at the same time as, as increasing my output. Right. And then they wonder why, like, it doesn't go as well as they expected to do. What I try and encourage people to do is the opposite is to say, throw like as much as you can into your system to support the output. And surprisingly, you don't actually gain as much weight as you think or any weight. And so if people can kind of get excited about what's happening with nutrition and using nutrition as a tool and treat nutrition the same way that you treat or have respect for your training, you'll be very surprised at what you can do because this is the thing is in climbing at the moment, people are very sort of, you know, excited about different training modalities and tweaking this and doing this and optimizing this and everything like this. And these people are doing that. Plus they're literally like, Oh yeah, I have a banana before my training session. And I have a protein shake after my training session. And I have three meals. I'm like, man, you're missing something. <laughs> like you need to be asking a nutritionist, what the hell more could I do? Like, can I put this in? Can I have a sixth meal? 
Should I get up in the middle of the night and have an extra meal? Should I be eating this type of food? How should I be supplementing with omega-3s to influence the inflammation? Should I be using the inflammation in one point and then allowing it to be cooled down in another point? There's so much cool stuff that people could do with nutrition. So, so to kind of keep it a little bit functional, if you have someone who normally climbs, let's say the evening, because that's most people, isn't it, after work, um, what was it you'd recommend? So you, you said because they're, if this person's an office worker, um, yeah. they can have a relatively normal, small breakfast and lunch. And then what would you do? What would you suggest they eat just as they're coming up to that uh, climbing window? Yeah, so I so I would try this first, right? You know, I I'm a big proponent of a protein supplement, um, and I I don't even call it really a supplement anymore because it really is just an isolated protein source. You can't replace all your meal your protein meals with you know whey protein or a vegan protein blend um, because it's isolated, so you don't get some of the fats and the other vitamins and minerals. But as a natural tool. It is an incredibly, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, but the benefit for the cost is huge. I mean, it's just so, so great. So what happens is that, yeah, you can eat your normal meal that you, that you have for breakfast, you know, whatever you like doing. And then depending when you're going to actually do your climbing session. So let's say it's a typical office worker. So they're going to be climbing from, let's say, 7 p.m. Okay. So what I would focus on is, yeah, I would, bring in a little bit more carbohydrates at your uh, lunch meal, right? So rather than just having a sandwich, let's say, a you know, I don't know, a sandwich and a banana or something, uh, you know, what I would probably do is is bringing in another, another piece of fruit or something like that, right? Or try and increase just some more starchy carbs by bringing in some rice or quinoa or something like that. Um, and what we're doing there is we're basically just topping up the muscle glycogen the muscle glucose stores, right? And we're doing that just to sort of refresh the body so that it's going into the session with a bit more local energy store, right? Then if you're really trying to squeeze the best out of yourself and you're one of these people who really want to push the sort of the boundary of trying hard and 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 pushing the stress on your body, right? What I would do is I would sort of, let's say, 30, 40 minutes before you actually start your session, I would have something like a protein shake, just a sort of 20 grams of protein powder and water, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, and then also a good dollop of carbs. So I'm, I'm a big fan of using of white rice. It just seems to sit very nicely. It's not very heavy and it's incredibly rich, right? And also because it's just plain, you can control the total energy of it. If you're using things like cliff bars or muesli bars, you tend to just get bundled along with it some fat, which you're not really going to use for energy in that sense. It's just additional calories that you don't, and I say you don't need, but it's just, it's nicer to control because what you're really wanting is for your training is protein and carbohydrates in the most sense. So what I use is either, it could be like white bread or white rice or quinoa or something like that, but you want to do a nice serving of that. So it could be like a cup or something of a starchy carb, right? You can even do potatoes, but a protein and some carbs about 30, 40 minutes before your training. And that time window is just so it obviously digests and that you're feeling feeling good. You then you can then push yourself because your your nervous system is refreshed. 
you have a lot of energy that's in flux at the time. And so your body will know, hey, I've got this energy available. I've got this glucose available. So let's push ourselves hard. You'll be able to do that. If your session is sort of, an, let's say, a busy office worker or a family person or someone with commitments, yeah, you're, you might only be in the gym for, let's say, two hours max, right? Um, uh, you probably don't need to put any more carbohydrate in the middle of the session, right? Unless you're somebody who is, is very good with training density. And what happens is that at the halfway point where, let's say, you've done your climbing first, and then you're now going to do your sort of circuit training or strength and conditioning or something like that straight afterwards. Then I would put something sweet and sugary um, and easily digestible in that transition point. And, and what that is doing is it's, it's quote unquote, not that you need the energy, but that new glucose availability to the nervous system is going to just sort of light up your body and your nervous system and say, Hey, Let's push ourselves hard because we've got this, this flux of energy coming in. And it's almost like a refreshing point for the body. So I use something sweet, like it could be fruit or it could be uh, like a bar or something like that, because it's just very quickly digested. If you want to be really controlled with your intake, I would use something like a sports drink. So it could be like a, not a Tenzing, <laughs> something <laughs> like non-caffeinated. Uh, I think Tenzing don't have a caffeine, but they also don't have very much sugar. So anyway, use something like a, you could just use fresh fruit juice or you could use a Lucozade or something without uh, glucose, but something like that, very easy digested, you know, within three or four minutes it's in the circulation. You do the rest of your training. And then if possible, I would say put another protein, an isolated protein shake right at the end of the session. And what I have found is that this, this big window of food or nutrition across that training window creates a kind of environment that is just providing everything the body needs to, to both push itself and also kick off the recovery earlier. So what you've had is in that session, let's say two hours, you've got like, let's say, 40 grams of protein so all those amino acids have been circulating all the way through the training session. They can be used for various things. At the end of the session, you get this rise in amino acids from the protein that kicks off what they call muscle protein synthesis and all of the recovery. You've got this buffer of glucose going across, which could any, be anything from sort of 300 to 400 calories just of that, that is then saturating muscles and allowing that to be done. And then most people are going to go home and actually have a big a normally big meal. What you'll find is that if people are worried that, oh, no, it sounds like I'm going to be overeating and just get fat, you won't. What happens is that when you put a load of energy into the training session, your body is very good because it will upregulate unconsciously its use of the energy available. We know this with carbohydrates. There is a concurrent increase in carbohydrate metabolism when we increase carbohydrates in a window of time, i.e. when you eat carbohydrates, your body upregulates its use for carbohydrates, right? It just burns more of it. And so what we're trying to do here is really just lift the body's available energy and also put in all this other stuff so that you recover better. And then what I'm saying about the, the sort of automatic control is that you might find that at dinner, 
the choice of the foods that you have at dinner might be changed whether or not you need quote unquote energy or more substrate, i.e., before you're having this massive, I don't know, bowl of like carbonara pasta, right? You might find that when you actually go to make your meal, unconsciously, you actually dial your carbohydrates down a little bit or up or down. And so you don't have a massive meal. It just automatically balances a little bit better, right? And so what you do is that's where you kind of trust your body. Actually, by, by doing that, it auto-regulates how much energy you need without knowing your calorie count. But also you're, you're removing that high stress window of training. And so you don't end up going to the shop and eating a bag of, you know, Pringles and then something else and then having this and this and this for dinner as a kind of automatic compensation for the expenditure that you've done. It's also why, and I'm telling you the truth here, and this happens more with female athletes, 100% of female athletes who come to me and say that they cannot stop snacking on carbohydrate foods, like sugary foods, that they, they, they have a quote unquote sugar addiction, or they have this, or they really crave, or they binge on chocolates or whatever. That is 100% solved when we put in carbohydrates to the training session. It's almost like the body is like, hey, we had a deficit of carbohydrates here throughout the week. So what I'm going to do is basically make you just like, go off and eat a bunch of candy or bread. But when you put when you buffer that session with carbohydrates and you put carbohydrates across the day, amazingly, you don't get carbohydrate cravings. Mm. Um, and you don't, and your, your palate for sweet things actually changes. You don't crave that. And again, that's that weather pattern. The body's very smart. It knows what it needs. And again, the, the interesting thing is, and this is what people don't quite understand about energy balance, the more you pull out of your body in terms of energy, the more there will be some feedback to say to the, for the body to say, hey, let's make different choices, right? So if you're doing a training session and you're, let's say, slightly under eating or just at energy balance, you're not going to do more training. You will do the bare minimum that the body feels motivated to do. You throw a bunch of carbohydrates into the session Guess what? You're doing campusing like at the end of your sessions, right? Now, I, wa I warn people and say, you've got to be careful with this because you will find that you want to do more, but you then got to be smart with your training load, right? Because that's the other thing is you've got to look at like you can't suddenly do a bunch of campusing if that's totally off, off the page of your training, total training load, right? But what I'm trying to encourage people, and this is sort of the core of my coaching, is that you throw a bunch of food into your body, your body responds by saying, hey, let's do a hell of a lot more. And guess what? The, the climber who's doing more training, quality training and recovering from it, they're the ones who are going to get better, right? I totally believe the reason Aiden is, Aiden is because the way that he eats and the, 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 the discipline of the level of intensity he does in his training, right? Because he, I know that he eats well and I know that because of his his sort of vegetarian background, he's always had enough carbohydrates. And do you eat mid-training, Aiden? Uh, I do now. I'm so, yeah, I was going to uh, chip chime in at some point. Um, summarizing that, I think essentially like the point is you introduce a series of mechanisms uh, like loading your training period with 
protein either side and carbohydrates uh, and then at that point can rely a little more on your body's intuition of what it requires but you can do so with the knowledge that you've done everything to maximize the volume in which your body can manage and recovery from there. Um, and, uh, this was something which anecdotally, uh, like, and I've definitely experienced my hesitancy to commit to that in the past or like, or like it makes sense just increasing your input would allow you to do more. But my reluctance to do that in the past was like, Oh, well, obviously if I eat more, I will put on more weight and I want to stay light for sake of performance or finger injuries or whatever. And I've definitely found the thing about like, um, so I think I mentioned, spoke a bit about my diet when we first started this podcast a little while ago, which was at the time, I think I just got back from my trip in Switzerland. I was moving around in my van um, and I was quote unquote in a performance phase in that I was like, I was pretty light Um I wasn't in like any structured training. I was like going out and climbing outside and like performing at my best, uh, like on specific climbs. So I wasn't really managing the volume of training that I do when I like, at the moment I'm currently in a training phase. Um, and at the time I was finding I was eating a lot less because generally a bunch of factors would impede me before my body would give out. So like, the reality especially in the uk lots of the hard things we do you maybe get like five six tries before some skin thing impedes you and so like pretty much uh by like i just wasn't super i wasn't really hungry and i found that the amount i was eating less wasn't so much impeding my recovery just because my output was so much less um now so I think at the time I spoke, I wasn't actually eating that much. I, pro- I don't think I was eating that much protein. I didn't really find it was like re- uh, like restricting my recovery at all. Since the last few weeks, I've been uh, in quite a heavy training block. And uh, I weighed myself at the start of it. And actually, I was actually quite light. Um, uh, I just it makes sense. I had been in the van for a while. Um, and I've been like kind of monitoring my weight throughout it. And then essentially at the start of the training block, obviously I was new to, I've done lots of these exercises before, but I was new, new, well, it was like the start of a training phase. I hadn't done it in a little while. I was a bit deconditioned and went into it kind of eating as I had before had incredibly debilitating doms. (laughs) And so I can getting out of bed in the morning was a real effort like <laughs> i felt a bit of a shell of a person um anyway i yeah really ramped up because i have experienced it in the past ramped up the amount i eat I, like have carbs and a shake before i start um, my training and like yeah depending on sometimes i eat straight afterwards so then wouldn't put it in afterwards but um, uh it depends on like my training days there's quite a lot of variation in them still um, but like have been like front loading and snacking in the sessions. And, uh, so that's all like excess. I don't, haven't really noticed my meals sizes change, but I've put in a lot more. And in the more recent sessions, I've definitely felt like, well, throughout inevitably throughout training phase, everything's been 
kind of numbers have been creeping up and things. Um, I don't really have muscle soreness the same amount. Obviously I'm adapting to the exercise a bit, but like I have like energy levels and surprisingly my weight has been completely consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, it hasn't really changed at all, but yeah, like you say, I've been eating a non insignificant amount more. Um, and I think it kind of, yeah, it's like a little anecdote that like, cause I think essentially lots of people's hesitancy to do that as well would also be like, oh, body weight. Yeah. It's obviously so thinking of the calories, like, well, I need this much calories and now I'm eating another 600 calories. So surely I'm going to put body fat on. Yeah. 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 yeah that I would, of... I would definitely have said that you would. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought, I was, I thought that's how it worked. Yeah. yeah. No, but, and, and it makes sense because people think of it for mathematics, but the, the, the tricky thing is, is we don't understand the outputs you see. And I think that's the, that's the thing that is, that's why I really think if you think, understand the body as a sort of smart soup, or as a weather pattern, um, it's a much better way to see things. And, and again, like you don't reset your calorie count at midnight. And so you can start again, you know, I mean, if you look at, if I was to sort of monitor the way that I eat across my week, I like, I should do it one day just so people could see it really varies. I have some days that I eat like only one or two protein meals, right? Because it's so far away from any training load that it ends up being what I call like a cake day. So when I do coaching, normally Thursday is the day that I do the bulk of my, my video calls. And I do that. So I have more space for admin on, on the other days that day ends up being like a coffee and a croissant for breakfast, uh, a protein shake. So I always have a protein shake when I wake up because it's in my bathroom. Uh, it's just an easy win for me. And then it would be like a coffee and croissant for breakfast. And then for lunch, it might be just a coffee and then for dinner it could be whatever right but i'm doing nothing that day apart from sitting and doing video calls um and uh it's that is an intuitive intuitive thing right sometimes i might have a much bigger dinner right i'm also not concerned necessarily that i'm eating low protein on that day because it's, you know, the body's not going to suddenly fall apart because I had that. And also by having slightly lower protein, it actually frees up some energy space for eating madeleines, right? <laughs> or some other cake, right? Um, and the great thing about it as well is that the fact that I'm eating, let's say, madeleines on, on a Thursday means that I don't crave eating sweet things across the week, right? And I'm not making very conscious decisions to do this, but it's just waving it. However, if you, if you look at a day, let's say a, a Wednesday when I do um, uh, I do resistance training and I do pole dance in the evening, right? That could be like a cumulative four hours of training. I have literally a, a 250 grams of rice and a protein shake at the start of my session of resistance training. I have some snack halfway through. And at, right at the end of that session, as quickly as possible, I have another 250 grams of rice and another protein shake which is then the pre-workout to my pole classes that are going to happen in, let's say, an hour's time, which then are two hours. And then guess what? I come back and I do normally an hour to an hour and a half on the rowing machine, Mm. right? And then I go home. And then in my bag, I have another protein shake. And then I go home and then I do um, a normal meal. And that meal's pretty heavy. So that would be like more rice and maybe kidney beans and other vegetables and things like that. Um, 
It is interesting to me, again, speaking as a layman, like I wasn't expecting to have so, so many kind of like, open quote, bad foods uh, getting thrown out. So oh, like, I would have thought, you know, you've got to avoid that croissant, you know, you've got to avoid the, the cake and stuff. But sure. it doesn't sound like that's really the case. Well, think about what it is, right? And I think this is the thing is that there, there are things that are, that are poisonous to us, for sure. People, people know that these things are poisonous, right? Um, the other things is really, the rest of it is, is really about context. Right. So if you can imagine that food is, is in a general sense going to be substrate. So that would be carbohydrates, starches, and it'll be proteins and then the fats contained in this thing that we're eating. And then the signaling is the effect that these substrates have on our body. So the easy way to think about it is like, if you've, if you've, if you've slept, you know, a normal night's sleep or whatever, eight hours, and then you wake up in the morning, the body is in a different physiological state than it would be, say, immediately after dinner, right? So, for instance, your need for carbohydrate. So, let's take an example like a can of Coca-Cola, right? What is, what is quote-unquote, safer for the body to drink the can of Coca, Coca-Cola uh, half an hour after you've just well, let's use something like Maltesers or a bag of candy or something, right? Like this is what people would normally do. You have a big pasta meal for dinner, and then half an hour later, you turn Netflix Netflix on, and you then eat the bag of Maltesers, right? What is safer for the body, to have the Maltesers directly after a big carby meal or to have the Maltesers for breakfast? It's to have the Maltesers for breakfast because the body is in a different state of carbohydrate uh or glucose right you have space in your liver because your liver has been supplying glucose overnight and so that bag of maltesers is incredibly helpful in this context to restore your liver glycogen right you're not going to feel very satisfied and it's also probably not very replete in vitamins and minerals right but the safety of it if we're going to talk about the safety of it is better to have it at breakfast then to suddenly jack your glucose up another, say, I don't know what it would be, 40, 50 grams of glucose whilst your body is trying to deal with the massive meal of pasta, right? Mm. This is why the kind of myth of don't have carbs before bed will make you fat is not because carbs are inherently fattening. It's because the type of carbs that people eat in the evening tend to be like concertina together. So it would be like a big carby meal plus something desserty plus a snack later, right? And normally the snack later happens because of the types of foods that you have at the meal. So most people know this, that a lot of times the things that we snack on are things that we remember that taste good. And a lot of the reason that we have cravings and stuff is not because a body needs anything. It's just the fact that we remember eating them and they're nice. So this is why you get these kind of food rewards. Like you eat a meal at the end of the day and you seem somehow need to reward yourself with something sweet or it feels like the meal's not complete, right? And also if you have very sort of fast digesting foods, you tend to want more carby things later on, right? Um, but the types of foods, if you think of it in terms of whether the context is, let's say, useful or not, is a much better way of looking at it. 
the croissant for me in the morning has almost zero to do with nutrition and it has everything to do with ritual, right? And pleasure, right? I just like croissants. It's an incredibly expensive habit. Like, I, I mean, I don't smoke or drink or do any drugs, right? So the, the croissant for me is like a whatever, two pound 50 vice. I'd love to kick it out. And, you know, from time to time, I, I do kick it out just to save money. But I just like the ritual of having my coffee, sitting there checking my emails and chomping on a croissant, right? It provides, I don't know, 30 grams of carbs or something, right? Very quickly digested. And, and I've checked it on a blood glucose meter. Within half an hour, my glucose returns back to baseline, right? So the, the, it's not nutrient replete. It's basically butter and flour, right? But my importance in the morning is my habit of having a protein shake, right? Now, yes, I could get up and make a, an elaborate meal, but you know what? Like I'm a busy person. And so my elaborate meals are actually at the end of the day because that's when I have time to sort of whatever, watch a couple of episodes of Netflix and, you know, stuff is cooking on the stove. And I tend to eat, for instance, a, a little side salad with every single one of my meals. So whatever I'm cooking on the stove, whilst that's cooking, I've chopped up tomato, half a cucumber, one tomato or two tomatoes and a, and a green a green or yellow pepper or something. And then whatever herbs or stuff and garlic or whatever, I feel like jazzing it up. And I'll sit, stand there in the kitchen eating that out of a bowl, right? Whilst my other stuff is cooking, right? While watching Netflix, you know, on the side. And so my end of the day meals are much more elaborate and quote unquote nutrient rich, right? But the front of the day, most of the time is really quite slim, um, uh, and so there really is no, there is no good or bad foods. It's going to be more or less useful. Uh, I.e., I try and steer people away from eating cliff bars and these sort of bars around training because you can just fall into the habit of eating a kind of sugary, high calorie because it has palm oil or some other oil in it, right? It's costing you money and it's not giving you much. Like people will use a, I keep hounding on cliff bars. It's the only thing that's coming to mind. But, but people look at a cliff bar and it's like, oh, it's 20 grams of protein. I don't think it is. I think it's probably like 15 grams of protein. You're getting a bunch of fat calories, which you don't need, and minuscule amounts of carbs, like 30 grams. Whereas if you had actually chosen a good protein source, I mean, you could even, you know, cut up some chicken and, and have some chicken and rice, you know, 40 minutes before your training session if you wanted to, Right. But if you can control that, you'll be a much better way to use actual food. And also, from experience, if you're doing a lot of training, I, I used to be a big fan of like pita breads. But what I was finding that if I was doing these sort of three or four days of double sessions, uh, I was eating an exorbitant amount of pita breads across the week. And I just don't think eating that much flour is, that could be a, say, a healthy or rather optimal because it's just, I mean, flour is just paste, right? You know what I mean? It's like you're just eating glue, right? Whereas if I'm like, okay, what do I need? I need the carbohydrates. So why don't I use something that's a whole food source or, or a more whole food source? So I use basically white rice um, or some other things, something like quinoa. And, and lo and behold, you actually feel a lot better for it as well. You don't yeah. have gut issues. And, I, and, I, and it's not people are gluten insensitive, but I think it's actually just the digestion of, if you can imagine, like if you're eating something that's flour or pasta, it takes very little effort for for the digestive juices and stuff to digest that. It just becomes like becomes back a flower again, right? You know. 
Whereas if you're eating something that's more solid, like a whole food, there's different surface area. It gets broken down. The fiber is changing your gut health because these things are hanging around in your gut that are healthy for the bacteria to be populated. Whereas with just refined products, and this is the good and bad potentially, refined products, there's nothing for there, there to exist. You know, if I eat Madeleine cakes, it's sugar and butter and flour. There's no food for gut bacteria there. It just passes straight through my gut. And also from a stool point of view, if you're just eating refined foods, you've got nothing to bulk out a stool. And so if you have like looser stools or have trouble actually, you know, doing a bowel movement, it can often be because a lot of your food could be things like bread or pasta. Um, and so that's why it's, it's not because they're unhealthy. They're just less helpful. So why don't you learn to actually use other whole foods? I wanted to chat about this, like gut health bacteria mm. or microbiome, as it gets often referred to, um, as it seems quite an influential like field of nutrition, which is becoming, well, more and more understood. One of the, I feel like one of the most well-known parts of that is the value of variation in mm. the foods we eat uh, and the effect that that has on gut health um alongside that the amount of fiber um which obviously is a bit harder to digest and well there's a few questions around this partly you mentioned whole foods like kind of balancing whole foods and like highly processed foods uh i feel like correct me if i'm wrong but whole foods generally are a lot more beneficial for that like gut health than highly processed foods um a lot of fiber in whole foods and a lot of variation also quite beneficial is that something that you find like is like incredibly important or like, has a big effect yeah. on on like a, is it like a noticeable effect like is it tangible like um, yeah, I, th I think there's two things. One is the actual the actual mechanism or the the, the substrate of it, the, or the complexity of the food itself, right? So yes, different types of foods are going to have different um, fibers or things that are uh, what we call like insoluble or soluble, meaning that the the body can fully break it down or can't fully break it down, right? And these different um, uh, substrates. Or, or molecules are are part of the food and the ecosystem of the gut. What we kind of forget, right, is that the our gut. So we're talking about this basically this very complex tube that goes from our mouth to our anus is really outside the body, right? The world that we live in, right, the barrier between the world that we live in, our environment, and our internal system is our skin. Right. And so our skin is very controlled with what it can let in, meaning almost nothing, basically some moisture and like sunshine. Right. Our gut is incredible because the gut is outside. Right. It's basically the world outside, but inside us because we're a tube, right? We're a donut, if you can imagine. Right. But all of the lining of our different parts of the, of the, in this internal system can amazingly block certain things going out, coming in and allow some things to come in. Right. So if we can understand it as a kind of like, <clears throat> like, uh, what is it called? Um, 
you know, that sort of fantasy thing of like the inner world, you know, like there's like goblins and little people and stuff, you know, Middle Earth, right? If you can imagine that your gut is like Middle Earth, right? When we eat things, we want to provide stuff to the Middle Earthers that is going to allow them to create farms and build cities and create population. Because what we're knowing, right, is that this is the most amazing part of science that is coming out now, is that these this bacteria and all these different things, and even fungus, apparently. I didn't know this. This is a new thing. Apparently, we have different fungus, like internal fungus, right? Um, these things are part of literally what made us human and what is creating feedback mechanisms and sending different molecules and changing stuff. The science of the gut biome is like like a blossoming field because they're realizing that with sort of very controlled studies they do it with mice they can they can create a a a mouse strain i think they're called germ free which is basically like they're completely sterile they don't they basically they c-section them they they birth them and there's zero bacteria in their gut these things just die or they have deformities or they have cancers or they have this right they then tweak this different gut biomes from different mice and they can cause different things you can take like gut bacteria from an obese mouse and put it into a lean mouse and the lean mouse becomes obese and vice versa. They're looking at things like different uh, things that could be like uh, Alzheimer's or autism or schizophrenia or all of these things. All of these seem to have a potential interaction with gut biome, right? So to say that it's, it's not important is like an understatement. Like it's really more and more incredible, right? To understand that if you can imagine the way that we're screwing up our environment and the world outside and realizing the balance of the ecosystem in the wider world, if we understand that this needs to be the same for the middle earth, right? (laughs) You start to have an appreciation about what you put in your body. Because if every meal you get to choose about whether to influence the health of your gut, then you will automatically start to say, hey, if I'm eating foods that have a complexity to them, i.e. rather than having a cliff bar, <laughs> I'm going to have a banana because a banana has some carbohydrates. It has some different starches. It has soluble and insoluble fibers, right? And that one opportunity for a meal is going to be another vote for improving the gut. Then I think that's a much better way of seeing the food choices, Right. I eat a bag of Madeleine cakes while I'm on my calls because I like it. Is it doing wonders for my gut at that point in time? Not really. It's fairly benign, but I couldn't keep eating like that. And almost everybody knows that if you eat a lot of pasta and a lot of bread, you just don't feel so great. Like there's something about it that just doesn't feel so great after a amount of time. But when you start to introduce more whole foods, which also... I think this is the psychological bit about nutrition um, uh, is that it starts to teach you how to prepare food. It teaches you to make good choices. It teaches you about flavor profiles. It teaches you about variability and variety. And also just this practice of preparing food is a stress reliever. If you talk to anyone who actually, I mean, Aiden's a great baker, you know, making your own food 
or creating something from a recipe or making your own recipe is a practice is a sort of meditative practice in itself and incredibly rewarding. And, and it's almost like this thing of, of like what we evolved to do, which was to gather different things and combine them and make them into something and share them with other people and eat these things. This has a holistically healthy effect on us that, for instance, you know, like a Huel shake or something, right? I'm a big fan of them. Doesn't seem to do, even though like a Huel shake is quote unquote nutritionally complete, right? Yeah. There's, There's like something. all the other layers around like. Absolutely. I, I've often thought that I, I think I am. Um, Actually, yeah, I, uh, well, I one time did some writing and felt like obviously there's like a performance element to nutrition and seeing food as fuel. Obviously, you can be very tactical and thoughtful about like how we apply that to our lives. But I've often felt like food in many ways has always, I, I think not for everyone, but has always been like quite a important thing for me in like, social situations like some of my like often well when i was at uni in london i was like very busy studying training i was doing some coaching at the time and like essentially like preparation of food was like the time in which i would socialize connect with my friends like it's something quite nice which like kind of like connects you to other people and i always found like food played that role for me and like I'd end up compromising on lots of things about my routine, but that was something I w- that was always consistent. And it's like quite an amazing thing. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like there's importance to taking it seriously and how it applies to you, like from like a performance perspective, but entirely compromising on like the enjoyment, the enjoyment mm-hmm. it gives you like, I don't necessarily is think is like the answer or no. times when I have, I've found I'd have a more like upsetting, not upsetting relationship with food, but like I'd have a more difficult relationship with food when I t- entirely disconnected with the part of me, which found it like, uh, fulfilling. It sounds a bit cliche, but like, <laughs> no, no, I, but I think there is something to that. I think there is, you know, like the, I think more and more we're realizing that humans, humans to be human, uh, require some kind of basic things. And it's like, uh, it's movement or using the body. You know, it's, it's so crazy that we talk about like, what is the minimum amount of exercise that people should do? Right. It's like, it's almost like, what is the minimum talking you should do? Right. Or it, it's just like, it, it, this is not a thing. Like, the way that the body works, the weather system works is by using itself, like by doing stuff. It's not that you have to do exercise. It's no, you are exercise. That's what it means to be a human. Right. And it's, we shouldn't call it exercise. We should just call it being human. Right. That's you move and then you change and you do things. Right. We need social interaction. Right. But real social interaction. I mean, you know, this with, you know, the lockdown. I mean, I did hours of video calls but it's not the same as being with a real person, right? There's something about that that's different, right? Than just seeing a screen. And then we need to eat and we need to have food, 
right? And, and varieties and complex of food. And then we need sunshine, right? And sunshine is not just sunshine on our skin, but actually being out in nature, right? And one of the things I think climbing or the climbing, you know, the, the lifestyle of climbing is I think the reason that it's such a, uh, an incredible sport is that it puts people out in nature. And it is the key thing that I miss, right? Because I don't have that, right? Luckily in London and stuff like that, it's, it's actually quite a green city in terms of being exposed. And because I'm in, in East London around Canary Wharf area, I've got the water by me and things like that. But, you know, these sort of core things that we need really are what keeps us healthy and they are greater than having a Huel shake, taking a vitamin D supplement, doing screen time and doing, you know, a, a hit interval session, you know, three times a week. Like that does not make a human being like that's not going to make you healthier. There's, and that's, um, there's definitely something nebulous, isn't there? That's slightly intangible. That's missing from those. Um, but I just wanted to jump in very quickly there because what's interesting is you, you said there about kind of the important parts of being healthy or social interactions and interacting with nature and eating good food and getting exercise. And I just thought it was quite interesting because all of those things were so impacted during the lockdown years. Mm, absolutely. We didn't get any one of those four things. Uh, and I think it was so funny how like people tried to find ways to get through lockdown and not have it be pretty awful but i think for most people it was it was pretty awful wasn't it even if even if people are thinking well i'm not working i'm still being paid I'm, this is kind of what i would do on my weekend you know some yeah. people like to sit on the sofa watching netflix and stuff and even they just really hated it it's, it's really yeah. interesting i think i think the easiest way to explain it to, to, to someone is is the same way that and i'm going to get it because i'm going to, to canary, canary islands in you know three days is when I go and see the sea, when I'm sitting, I grew up in South Africa in Port Elizabeth near the coast. Mm. When I sit on the beach and I watch the waves come in, I got goosebumps now just to saying that there is something, you have that kind of quasi-religious experience, right? Mm. People who grow up in like the, whatever, the Peak District or in other countries, you know, when they go to that part in nature or they see, they go to, you know, the uh, whatever mountains or something right you get that experience that puts you into into a place where you're like ah my life is insignificant and i'm also part of something greater than you know for instance a zoom call and my trouble in life's right and my bladder issue or something right and i think that's the thing that i, I absolutely lockdown was incredibly impacting on people is that they didn't get that and I think we're realizing more and more that we can't be a human in a kind of purely digital world. Like we talk about the metaverse and this is going to, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? But it's not going to work, right? It's, it's going to be a head thing. And anyone who's ever spent a lot of time in just sort of intellectual pursuit, it's incredibly rewarding. But at some point it fails. Like you just feel off. Something is not right. Right. I think that's why we're seeing more and more mental health disorders, right? Because we've become incredibly, we're basically floating heads now and we assume that we can just do that. Right. Yeah. And so you can just have this incredible intellectual output and input, right? And have incredibly rewarding connections with people in the online space for sure. But it's it, not a replacement. It, it's, no, it can't replace it. 
something yeah. goes wrong. Like the body basically says, ah, there's like, there's multiple parts here that are missing. Right. Yeah, like yeah. it's not fulfilling and it's not just an intellectually fulfilling. It's, I think it's physically something's not right. I think it's akin to the vitamin D thing. Like we take vitamin D in Northern countries because we don't get sunshine on our skin a lot, but it seems to not be the same. Yeah. Like there's something missing there. Like there's just a molecule of vitamin D is not a substitute or sorry, a replacement for actually being out in the sunshine. And maybe it's because there's other stuff going on as well. Like with what you're saying with the microbiome, you know, we're only just starting to figure out some of this other stuff that's going on. So in the past, the kind of meal replacement things didn't work because we, we didn't know they were there. But sorry, Aiden, you were just about to say something. Yeah, no, I thought that was like, it's quite a nice sentiment as in like, and I think applies really well, like just the example of like vitamin D. Well, often like the importance or value of nutrition, well, nutrition in the context of this discussion um, can be so intense in people's lives as though like, like you say, people take their training so seriously. They can like take the nutrition so seriously that like the, it becomes so transactional with it. Like I eat this to do this, mm. that it can like almost negate kind of well-being as well. And like, I almost think that a lot of the time the disordered eating that we've referenced earlier can often come from like the intensity of people feeling like the value they get from their food uh, and like letting that outweigh any of the, satisfaction or enjoyment of food which like to a certain degree everyone enjoys food like some people enjoy it like more or less than others like i know for me like i've always really enjoyed food and like making nice meals and like it's always been something that's like quite important for my well-being and i think it's not to be underestimated I'm not going to put you out of the job. <laughs> take your take your nutrition seriously. It goes for it, guys. <laughs> yeah, you, like it's important to obviously take it seriously, but like, um, yeah, like not necessarily the detriment of like you then. I don't know. Never eat it past to being your favorite food, and you never touching it because it's too refined or like. And then living your life craving pasta, like life's too short for that. <laughs> but again, it's so funny because it's again, it, it doubles back to what we were kind of just saying in that you could do it all right with nutrition by the book, but there's something missing in that sense that you're not happy. And if you're not happy, you're not going to be at the pinnacle of your athletic Absolutely. performance. And yeah. that that is the key thing with it. And that's really where the education part comes in. It's like I said, is that there are no good and bad foods. The, the foods are going to have a better com a context to have them, right? But, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of people who have been scared of certain foods because of their upbringing, because of how it maybe has impacted them in the past and things like that. And the big thing I'm trying to give people is freedom, is to understand, well, these things are not working the way you think they work. Sugar is not making you ill just because you have some sugar in your tea, right? That's not the reason why all the other problems are happening in your life is because, you know, you need to detox, right? It's not, it doesn't work like that. If you, if you are happier in life by having a croissant at breakfast, right? Then do that because that can impact like a ripple effect, the rest of the, of the, the, the interactions you have with the world. 
Now, there are some things that we think are helpful, right? You know, if somebody says to me, you know, they really like a glass of red wine in the evening, or they really like, let's say, eating ice cream in the evening or something like that. These things, like anything, become can become problematic within the context, right? You know, and that's the thing is it's not – there's always nuance with this. You know, I don't think having alcohol uh, within hours of going to bed is a, is a helpful habit to have because we know that it impacts sleep. It's the same thing as caffeine. You know, if you're doing evening training sessions, don't have caffeine because that's going to impact the quality of your sleep. Right, replace it with those carbs. You're going to get the same energy, and yeah, it might take a little bit of time to get to to change it. But the context of a coffee before bed is different from the context of a coffee in the morning. If anything, we have a, a vast amount of research now to say that ca- that coffee and potentially the caffeine and the combo in an actual cup of coffee is health beneficial. Like, there's a lot to to of in, on on that. Um, so. Caffeine in one context is bad, and caffeine in another context is good. So it's really context specific. Um, you can tailor all of your like preferences, and then try and like fit that into your like template of what works for you as well. Absolutely. I, I remember we had a discussion about this early on. I had an unconventional gap year, which is I was working with you at the time. Anyway, I finished school, had my gap year, and uh, the first like. The first few month, months of that, I actually moved in with my friend Jim Pope uh, in Sheffield uh, and was like in a training season there. Um, and the, my, the activities I did outside of training was pretty much solely baking. And I did it every day. <laughs> I was just experimenting, learning a lot of new things. Um, and uh, yeah, we I remember we tied that in as like Pete pre-training snacks and like yeah. uh rather than like yeah finishing the day having your car carb heavy meal and then being like well i've made this extravagant cake i'll wait i'm just the, like would instead like incorporate that into like my training routine Absolutely. and it's like and we may have just revealed like the secret the secret sauce <laughs> that makes aiden aiden it was cake cake and cake. whatever Beautiful. 45 degree board or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's well it ways to fuse your well-being with uh yeah nutritional um, yeah. optimization as well. 